Welcome to the 20th episode of Port Calls and Politics. Oh my god, 20 episodes. Oh, pat on my back. And that was EMFs unbelievable because Russia, they make it so hard to believe them, so damn hard. And that is my segue for today's episode about the recent poisonings of two Russians in the United Kingdom and what it all means. I am Mark Olson, an 11-year naval officer, here to delve into some tales I've picked up over the years, as well as things I pick up in social media circles, browsing the internet, cyberspace, stories forgotten, misrepresented, incredible, and always true, because, just like the Bad Religion song, the truth is stranger than fiction. And that is why this podcast right here remains the most modestly growing podcast in the entire world, hands down. Available on iTunes and SoundCloud, like, comment, share, and most important, subscribe. Please, right now, give me a five-star review and share with your friends. If you have any friends, I assume you have friends, share it with your friends. It is essential to growing this podcast and make me feel all warm and gooey inside, which we all want. I am broadcasting from my studio apartment in Washington, D.C. Now, before I start, I want to give a shout out to my friend Colleen and her podcast called A Year of Listening. In it, she covers the topics your mother told you not to discuss at dinner parties with compassion and most important, listening. I also want to point out a disturbing trend. I'm seeing a lot of people in activist circles boycotting advertisers. Now, I understand the rationale and even that it might work, but that's not the point. Now, long ago, this method was viewed as the nuclear option because one's opponents could do the very same thing with programming they oppose, programming you love. The real issue is that boycotting advertisers makes companies fearful of political content or anything that could be controversial. Controversial? Controversial. And controversial is in the eye of the beholder. Look, I'm not going to tell people how to live their lives, but the more people start boycotting companies because of the programs they don't like, the greater likelihood we go back to the old days of the 40s, 50s, and 60s when corporate sponsors served as the gatekeepers and greatly limited the quantity and quality of programming. This program is brought to you by General Electric, or Geritol. And it will be the bland conformity packed 30 minutes of a few aw shucks. If you love your shows, podcasts, and media, spend more time extolling their virtues, not silencing others. And that's kind of a life lesson as well. History has proven that blacklisting, banning, and boycotts of programming only embolden audiences to cling tighter not change their opinions. Ask Flava Flav of Public Enemy how much money they made after conservative groups and the lovable Tipper Gore called them out. The answer's a lot. Marilyn Manson, anyone? And even the Beatles, after Lennon made his mischaracterized bigger-than-Jesus comment, well, people still bought the record and bought them in droves. Change the channel, fight ideas with ideas, and support entities that represent your views. That's my little life lesson of the today. And let's get into today's episode, which chronicles the recent poisoning of two Russians by the Russians on English soil. Well, that's a confusing one. Though the Kremlin denied involvement, the poison and its unique history 
leaves zero doubt they are to blame. Enjoy. Earlier this March, Yulia Skripal was visiting her father, Sergei, in Salisbury. Who could have imagined the cathedral city in Wiltshire, England, home to a modest 40,000 residents, would spark international controversy, condemnation, and the expulsion of diplomats. But what happened that day, that March 4th, wasn't by chance. No, the poisoning of Yulia and Sergei had Russian fingerprints all over it. Despite Putin's denial, there was zero doubt. No surprise, it occurred around the time he was elected to yet another term as president. For anyone keeping track, since 1999, he's been prime minister two times and president four, including his current reign. Many see support slipping for Vova. Vova is actually his nickname because Vlad translates to ruler of the world. His chief rival, Alexei Navalny, was barred from challenging him for the presidency. The Wall Street Journal described Navalny in 2012 as the man Vladimir Putin fears most. A lawyer, activist, and graduate of prestigious alma maters to include Yale, he was a 2010 Yale World Fellow, Navalny matters because more like him are sprouting up all the time. He cobbled together a coalition of organized, outspoken opponents. But in a unanimous 12 to nothing ruling, the Russian election committee voted to block his candidacy. Rationale? A fraudulent conviction of fraud from the fraudulent government. A lot of fraud going on there. This is the same man who started as a blogger, when that was actually a thing, exposing corruption in state-controlled corporations. Oil, gas, aluminum, list goes on. His findings would shed light on the inner workings of oligarchs. Yes, I'll do an entire podcast on the aluminum wars and the aftermath, as well as how Paul Manafort, who worked for the Trump campaign, got to be such a bad, bad man. Navalny's research and role as opposition leader was the catalyst for the anti-Putin protests during 2011 and 2012, rallying thousands to defy the Kremlin. In 2013, he faced fraud charges. The sentence was harsh. However, the European Court of Human Rights challenged it, and Russia backed down. They issued a retrial, and this time he got a five-year suspended prison sentence and a modest fine. I think it was about $5,000. But the damage was done. He was now a criminal in the eyes of a swath of Russian citizenry. Although polls do show a majority feel the charges were politically motivated. But more importantly, the government, the government Navalny calls full of crooks and thieves, could now blacklist him. In 2017, unknown assailants arrived outside his office at the Anti-Corruption Foundation and attacked him. Now, Putin has gained other enemies too. Garry Kasparov, chess grandmaster, whom many call the greatest chess player of all time, is another outspoken critic of his rule. But nationalist fervor is high, especially with the invasion of Ukraine and ongoing support of Assad in Syria. 
Putin won with 76% of the vote in an election everyone doubts was free and fair. That and the Russians without a doubt were behind the poisoning in England. No credible evidence or argument can cloud that truth. The Russians deliberately poisoned these two in public and did so to prove a point. Send two messages. The first is that we can find our enemies anywhere and we'll hold them accountable. Imagine if you're Navalny and Kasparov hearing about these poisonings. What would you think? Two was doubling down on Putin's bases, nationalist fervor, driven by this feeling that Russia is being unfairly treated on the global stage. Blamed for the most awful things because no other countries want to see her succeed and gain her rightful place. Putin is the only man strong enough to prevent Europe, America, and others from taking advantage of poor, misunderstood Russia. Yet, we know 100%, despite the denials, this poisoning was all Russia. How can I possibly know this? Well... Look no further than the weapon, the tool, the poison, and you have your answer. Sure, poisons are all over the place and been used for centuries. The Princess Bride, Iocane powder, which Wesley, a.k.a. the Dread Pirate Roberts, built up an immunity to. There's Romeo and Juliet, the dreaded nightshade, secret agents chomping cyanide capsules. Didn't Socrates drink hemlock to end his tenure as a philosopher? A bunch of popes and Roman emperors, the old lady, Queen of Thorns, or whatever her name is from the Game of Thrones, met her end over a glass of wine. When it comes to killing, poisoning, I don't know, it has a certain allure. A whodunit. It's sneaky and terrifying because if they can get Steve from your office who brings in egg salad sandwiches and tuna to work, or some rando munching a Big Mac, they can get you too. The chess master, Gary Kasparov, I mentioned earlier, seems to fear Kremlin-ordered assassination a lot. He's a chess master and renowned brain, so that fear is likely substantiated. He only drinks sealed bottled water and eats foods personally prepared by trusted bodyguards. Either he's crazy or Russia gets horny for poisoning. And this particular poison... Well, that's the creme de la creme. Yep, this is no ordinary poison, and that's what makes this story so fascinating. As I speak, Yulia's condition appears stable. However, her father, a former Russian intelligence agent who had been working as a double agent for the UK's MI6, remains in critical condition. Critical condition due to a poison which, until the early 90s, no one even knew existed. Heck, how the truth leaked is bizarre. A family of nerve agents believed to be the most potent ever created and five to eight times more deadly than VX. Ten times more than Soman. The infamous Novashok agents, meaning newcomer, are extremely brutal. VX, if you remember, is the doomsday weapon in the Nick Cage and Sean Connery movie The Rock the one where disgruntled military vets seize Alcatraz. VX also killed thousands of Kurds in northern Iraq. And this agent, the Novichok agent, is far worse. 
If anything helps illustrate the psyche of Putin's Russia today and the Soviet mentality prior, it is these nerve agents. In 1971, the Soviet Union, under the program codenamed Foliant, began developing a new breed of nerve agents. Although none made an appearance on the battlefield, five Novoshock agent variants were ultimately weaponized for military use. The most capable being the fifth batch called A-232. Russia denies their existence. Oh, but they exist all right. How do we know? How do I know? Let's dig deeper. First off, it's important to understand why this class of nerve agents were even designed. What was their objective? One, to be undetectable using standard 1970s and 80s NATO chemical detection equipment. Two, to defeat NATO chemical protective gear. Three, to be safer to handle. And four, to circumvent the chemical weapons convention list of controlled precursors, classes of chemical and physical form. Let me tackle the last one. In short, some of these agents are binary weapons, meaning precursors for the nerve agent are mixed with a munition or explosive just prior to use. Because precursors are far less hazardous than the final nerve agents, handling and transport becomes simpler. They're also more stable and have increased shelf life, which is just another added benefit. Development began in an odd location, Nukus, Uzbekistan, that's N-U-K-U-S, kind of like Nukus. If you could describe Nukus with one word, it would be remoteness. Although home to over 200,000, this place is in the middle of nowhere, the boonies. Uzbekistan itself isn't exactly known as a spring break destination for sorority sisters. It's so remote that it's only two claims to fame are because of it. First is the world-class art museum, the Nukas Museum of Art. The survival of this modern Russian and Uzbek art is actually a miracle. See, Stalin did an exceptional job, eliminated non-Soviet art, and because he was Stalin, he sent most artists to the gulags. Modern art was simply not Soviet enough. It didn't have muscled brutes hacking wheat with size or hammering anvils or women standing resolute. Duh. Are these colored cubes and paint splatters? How dare you call this art? Through Siberia I spend you. They survived because Nukas sat in the middle of nowhere, the place so far Stalin had difficulty reaching. The second is the Red Army's Chemical Research Institute, one of the USSR's primary research and testing centers of chemical weapons. In 2002, with the support of Uzbek government, the Department of Defense completed final dismantling of the institute under a $6 million cooperative threat reduction program. It was here that development of Novoshock agents took place. For over 20 years, scientists labored in secret, toiling to make the ultimate chemical weapon. Testing is alleged to have taken place using small experimental batches on the nearby Ustyurt Plateau. The agents were likely tested and created elsewhere, too, but there's no corroboration. As with most Soviet-era history, details are fuzzy. 
One British chemical weapons expert, Hamish D. Breton Gordon, asserts Novichok agents were only produced at Shikani in Saratov Oblast in Russia. He was commanding officer of the UK's Joint Chemical, Biological, Radiation, and Nuclear Regiment and the NATO Equivalent Command. So he might have a point. Yet the confusion around the development merely reinforces the clandestine nature of it all. It was done highly covert and deliberately circumvented international agreements. We do have reason to believe these nerve agents were tested at Nucus, though other sites could have played key roles in development. As for testing, according to former Soviet security head Nikolai Volodin, dogs were used. Not cool. Though testing on humans would certainly be worse, dogs? Come on, what happened to rats? There are probably truckloads of those in communist-stricken Uzbekistan. Now for a little chemistry 101. What the heck are nerve agents and why should you and I care? Nerve agents are terrifying. It doesn't take personal experimentation, i.e. huffing nerve agents in your grandma's basement while you play Xbox Live to make you a believer. Nope. Nerve agents are organophosphate acetylchlorinesterase inhibitors. In layman's terms, nerve agents prevent the normal breakdown of neurotransmitter acetylchlorine. So what happens when concentrations increase? Well, muscles contract. All muscles. And things go from bad to worse. You suffer respiratory and cardiac arrest. Your heart and diaphragm muscles work irregularly. You then die, either from heart failure or suffocation as fluid secretions fill your lungs. The only antidote, as it were, is taking the fast-acting drugs such as atropine, which can block the receptors where acetylchlorine acts to prevent poisoning. Still, this is difficult to administer, and the dose needed is massive. Basically, the same dose at which patients suffer the nerve agent's effects of heart rate changes and secretions in the lungs. You also have to couple it with other drugs, like pralidoxum, and reactivate acetylchlorinesterase. <laughs> Alright, if there's a doctor out there, help me out. Anyway, advanced life support systems are mandatory for successful recovery, and even those don't carry a guarantee, as Sergey in England can attest. If he could speak, that is. If you do recover, which you probably won't, you will have lasting nerve damage, permanent disablement. Oh, God. Why would anyone gin up this awfulness? I mentioned in the episode on the creation of the AK-47 a while back that the miracles of science tend to be morally neutral. But this family of nerve agents, in fact, all nerve agents, are the outliers. These are designed to kill and do so brutally. They are whores and have no place, none at all, in a world that claims to be modern. Nerve agents. Awful. Okay, so how do we even know that these ones, these Novichok, even exist? We didn't. We didn't until a couple Russians leaked it. In 1992, Lev Fyodorov and Vil Mirzayanov, just prior to Russia's signing of the Chemical Weapons Convention, 
published a story in a weekly. Mirzayanov environmental concerns prompted his decision. See, he was the head of a counterintelligence department. Part of his duties was measuring concentrations outside the chemical weapons facilities. According to him, the deadly toxin levels were 80 times greater than the maximum safe concentration. That's just their word. I mean, his word, right? Well, Russia decided to levy a treason case against Mirzayanov. It seems reports from expert scientists presented to the KGB were so credible that Mirzayanov's leak represented high treason. I mean, why a treason rap if he was out to lunch? He was subsequently arrested on 22 October 1992, but released because they couldn't prove the scientific information he released constituted new discoveries. Turns out the real discovery, when all was said and done, was that generals were lying, not just to the people, but the entire international community. On the eve of entering this treaty, meant to bring an end to horrifying chemical weapons, chemists were still cooking up more. The fall of the Soviet Union resulted in a flood of others filling holes in the story originally provided. What didn't exist became fact. Yup, and Russia still denies their existence. But the real hero in this tale is one of the damn guys who made it in the first place, made the Novichok agents. In an ironic twist, the creation turned on the creator. That seems to happen a lot. Andrei Zelenzanyakov. There's a lot of Yan Yankovs or Yakovs in this whole uh, episode today. Anyway, he worked on Novichok agents in the 80s. Then, one terrible day in 1987, the scientist's hood vent malfunctioned, exposing him to the nerve agent's wrath. According to testimony, circles appeared before my eyes, red and orange, a ringing in my ears. I caught my breath and a sense of fear, like something was about to happen. I sat down on a chair and told my guys, it's got me. His supervisor, well, he had a solution. Drink some tea. Not sure if that's considered a valid treatment in Russia, but he vomited it anyway. They sent him home with the antidote. But he didn't make it home. He was rushed to the ER. Rumor is, KGB agents forced the triage doctor to sign a non-disclosure agreement that Zelenzynyakov ate bad sausages. Bad sausages. Serious. The atropine saved his life, but the nerve damage was severe. He spent weeks comatose and months bedridden. Through it all, he kept quiet kept silent like a good soldier. When Mirzayanov, Mirzayanov, God, this is hard, was arrested for treason and a Soviet official denied the nerve agent's existence, he went public before the poisoning ended him. He lost his life to the weapon he helped create and revealed it to an unknowing world. In 92, the same year, Lev Fyodorov and Vil Mirzayanov told their stories the nerve agent succeeded in crippling his central nervous system. A year later, he was dead. 
his fight with cirrhosis, toxic hepatitis, nerve damage, and epilepsy lost to Novichok. But going public eliminated any public and international doubt. When George Bush and Mikhail Gorbachev signed the U.S.-Soviet Chemical Weapons Accord, the deal was to cease production. We now knew it continued at least until 1993, though some say 94, and others argue it goes on to this very day. Zelen Zinyakov's declaration had massive significance because he left nothing out. He had nothing to lose. He was going to die. His days were numbered, and he treated it as such, slamming shut the idea that these were merely lies. It's rumored, and probably true, that he was hardly the first victim during the development of Novichok nerve agents. If people died in the development and it was never used in combat, how was it employed? When? Why can this be viewed as a calling card of Russian state-sponsored violence? Murder. In 1995, Russian banking tycoon Ivan Kivalidi and his secretary Zara Ismailova met their end in mysterious poisonings. There's shady and then there's this doozy. Notable historians believe the Russian security services carried out these killings. A former business partner, Vladimir Kutschishvili, was convicted. Maintaining his in- innocence... A closed trial determined he obtained the substance through intermediaries at the State Research Institute of Organic Chemistry and Technology. Kutschisvili freely left the country, as he wasn't detained at the time of the trial. In 2006, thinking the decade-old case was closed, he returned and was imprisoned. At least two critics feel this was a simple frame job to cover up state-sanctioned murder. Leonard Rink got a suspended one-year sentence for selling Novichok agents to an unnamed buyer of Chechen ethnicity. Now, I don't know. That just seems too convenient. Russians and Chechens loathe each other. Blame the Chechens. Wouldn't be the first time. Oh, I almost forgot. A Soviet officer named Vladimir Petrenko was poisoned in 1982 after volunteering to test a new protective suit. Good old Soviet design and tests. They never go wrong. Remember Chernobyl? Let's experiment with overloading reactors. That can't go south. Now they have super dogs prowling eerie streets and gigantic radioactive fish that make Mr. Burns look like a member of Greenpeace. Petrenko, before his death, was resolute he'd been tricked into a human nerve agent trial. Well, he could be correct, Relying on Kami safety gear was a fool's errand from the jump, so conspiracy may be myth in this case. Perhaps the biggest point of all this, besides the USSR being crappy, is that they were inking deals with the West, knowing full well their continued pursuit of advanced nerve agents violated the accords. Thus, Novichok nerve agents are so specialized, so rare, they only point to Russia. Which brings us back to the poisoning in England. There are only two possibilities. Well, three, but the third is BS. First, Russia used state-sponsored violence in an attempted murder on foreign soil in broad daylight with a toxin known to easily disperse. 
They knew this, yet exposed innocent civilians to possible secondary poisoning. Second, Russia lost control over their potentially catastrophically damaging nerve agent, allowing it to get into the hands of others. The third is that expert chemists got it all wrong and the poisoning was something else. Like bad sausages. With their modern, sensitive equipment, they misdiagnosed the cause of Yulia and Sergei's troubles. And bad sausage eating. If you believe that, grab a tin foil and start building a helmet. The UK's response, well, it was swift. On March 14th, they expelled 23 Russian diplomats after the Kremlin missed the midnight deadline to offer a plausible explanation. While Russia continued its denials, the UK evaluated 21 emergency service workers and civilians for exposure. Three were hospitalized and a police officer remains under care. 500 citizens were advised to decontaminate their possessions along with 180 military and 18 vehicles deployed to assist. Currently, the UK estimates 38 people in Salisbury were affected by the agent, but to what extent is unclear. Addressing the United Nations Security Council, Vasily Nebenzia denied Russia had ever produced or researched Novichok agents. It never happened. Oh, poor Russia. This is why everyone except super cool Syria and ever awful Iran hates you. Sorry, uh, you have Belarus, which is a real winner too. The Trump administration, alleged to have questionable ties to the Kremlin, Mueller, Mueller, expelled an estimated 60 diplomats. One careless, callous decision to try and murder Yulia and Sergei put them at odds with the world. At odds more so than they'd been in quite some time. Perhaps forever. And on to my final thoughts. In the upcoming months, I'll be delving deep into the rich history that is post-Cold War U.S.-Russian relations. The area of history that we never really talk about. We gloss over it. Berlin Wall falls, USSR disappears, and then everything's hunky-dory, peace dividend, Bill Clinton playing saxophone and all that stuff. Now, I'll explain what the U.S. position and goals are regarding NATO, missile defense, and global security. However, I'll be spending the majority stepping into Russian snow boots, explaining their perspective. What is behind their meddling in the U.S. elections and the Germans, as well as others? Nope, we weren't the only country afflicted with the scourge of Russian cyber attacks. What is behind their victim mentality, unwavering paranoia, kinship with bad apples of the world such as Syria? More importantly, what do they want? What, what does Putin want? That's what this is about, isn't it? Understanding the Kremlin's mentality, I mean, that's kind of easy. It's been suggested in issues of the Atlantic and The Economist that Putin wants security and to reemerge as a regional power with global influence. But that's the end state. It's far more useful to understand why. Just because is not the answer that drives Putin. That's not an answer at all. Because the Kremlin is evil isn't either. Russia's history of shocks and traumas is at the heart 
of each defiant invasion and each poisoning. Just as Garry Kasparov mastered the art of chess, so too has Russia and the art of the long game. And that is the title for this series. A series about human nature, secrecy, betrayals, real and perceived, and most of all, pride. It's a story that's been playing out ever since the Soviet Union collapsed and Moscow's once immeasurable might turned to rubble, turned to dust right before the West's eyes, America's eyes. Yes, in the remoteness of Uzbekistan, scientists created a WMD so rare, so deadly, it left a trail of bloody fingerprints leading back to Putin. The reset of relations, once believed possible, bankrupted by brazen threats of life and election meddling. The biggest backers, ones so willing to look the other way, are drying up. Russia has finally shed her skin. True form revealed. I want to thank each and every one of you for listening in to this 20th episode of Port Calls and Politics. I will be back in two weeks with the next episode, which is sure to make you think a little bit different and learn something in the process. I'm going to leave you all with Belle Bib DeVoe Poison, because it just it, it just seems so appropriate right now. And it's a great tune that really gets the blood flowing. So here it is, Belle Bib DeVoe Poison. Girl, I must